Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The House of the Golden Eyes by Theda Kenyon If Tim Gallagher had not spent twenty-four of his twenty-eight years in America, three thousand miles from the land of his birth, he would have missed the adventure that greeted him almost as soon as he set foot again in County Cork, for the wisdom of his native land would have warned him that the odds were against even his six feet of young strength. But American public school and college and associates had practically obliterated his atavistic superstition, and so it was that he spent half a night following the dancing lure of light that kept always just out of reach, careless alike of the fact that it was Maeve, and that better men than he had lost in their pitiful conflict with the -the will-o'-the-wisp. In fact, Irish though he was, he did not realise that it was the -the will-o'-the-wisp that he followed. He knew only that here was something puzzling, intriguing, which challenged his imagination and determination, and so he went after it, striding on firm ground, crashing into briars, sloshing dangerously through a swamp, and always, definite yet elusive, barely an arm's length away, yet as free of his grasp as the stars, the which light dulled his apprehension, until, suddenly conscious of a barrier other than rocks or trees, He tore his gaze from that flickering invitation, and found himself confronted with a building. It was one of those peasant cabins familiar to every tourist, but in the darkness it seemed to have a significance out of all proportion to its size, a significance enhanced by the mere fact of its existence in so desolate and lonely a place. Tentatively, Tim started around it ready to spring back or forward at the slightest warning, yet unaware of what he feared, and, moving in this way, he felt a slight but unmistakable shock on finding his path barred by a great flowering shrub, which seemed to throw a peculiar, unreal glamour over everything. Tim had never before seen Red Hawthorn in bloom. He could not really be said to see it now— but in the darkness he felt it, all its compelling supernatural beauty acting almost like a drug to his tired body and nerves. For a long minute he stood sensing it, struggling to recall the forgotten lore of his homeland. Hawthorne! It meant something. It had some strange association, deep-rooted in his race. He shrugged, abandoning the effort, and was about to knock to ask his way back to the town he had left, when a slight rustle caused him to turn sharply. Luckily, as he did so, his shoulder touched the cottage door, and it gave. The next instant he was inside, his back against its rotting panels, the sweat pouring over his livid face at the recollection of the two oblique yellow eyes that had flared out of the darkness, hardly a yard away. What had he seen? What manner of beast was it that crept out of the night, invisible even in shadowy outline, except for those terrible eyes? Was it a beast at all? 
Was it anything except his imagination? His mouth twisted in a bad attempt at a smile. Imagination! Where would he get an imagination to conjure up even an hallucination as infinitely evil as those eyes? There was something there, outside, waiting for him. Or was it waiting? Would it wait? Wait? Naturally. What else could it do? He was here, sheltered, safe. Here he would stay, until dawn. For some reason, he felt that the thing, whatever it was, would be powerless in broad sunlight. He would wait, then. It was ridiculous to yield to the prickle at his spine, the weak chattering of his teeth. With an almost heroic effort, he controlled them, and as if in deliberate mockery, a cascade of ghastly, demoniac laughter seemed to fall from the rafters just above his head. At the same second, directly in front of him, less than ten feet away, the dread golden ellipses flared and faded. At that, sheer, absolute terror owned him, terror in which was no element of common sense or reason. He lurched forward, stubbed his toe, and caught up the small stool in his path, instinct making him grab it automatically as a weapon. His quick motion had an unexpected result. It fanned into momentary life a fragment of peat, and the glow gave him a swift knowledge of the hut's interior. It was about eight feet square, with a central hearth and one window. The realization of that window restored his courage. Through it, he had seen those terrible eyes. They were not visible through a wall, nor had their owner entered the hut in some uncanny way, and the knowledge served to revive his reason. He was moving slowly now, sliding along the wall. If he could reach the window, reconnoitre without being seen or sensed by the thing outside, he might be able to settle the mystery. After all, many animals had eyes luminous at night. It might be that it was only his fatigue— that gave these such a sinister atmosphere. A faint draught warned him that the window was less than a foot away, and its freshness made him abruptly aware of the fetid odour of the cottage. From the moment of his entry, he had been vaguely conscious of it, even through the nerve-wracking events of the past few minutes. But now it nauseated him, and he closed his eyes, drawing deep breaths of the night air. Fortunately, it refreshed him, for raising his lids, he found himself staring into those golden eyes, and knew that they were steadily approaching. Gathering himself together, his left hand took quick measurement of the window, while his right raised the stool. But he never threw it, for without sound or warning, the space between him and those eyes melted, Something slashed his face from the corner of his brow to his mouth, barely missing his eye, and he found himself hung half over the sill, grappling with an unknown antagonist, which seemed to fight him as impersonally and effortlessly as a spirit. But it was not a spirit. Twice his hand closed on thick, short fur, beneath which he sensed delicate bones. The second time— he wrenched violently at what seemed to be the creature's foreleg, 
and only the repeated slash of pain, this time across his grasping hand, saved the bones in his grip from being snapped. In the second his grasp relaxed, his antagonist jerked back, and in that instant's respite he realized the terrible danger of grappling with this unknown thing, particularly with his own strength and technique so seriously impaired by the wall between them. Undoubtedly, the part of wisdom was to sit back to the door, stool in hand, keeping a dark vigil until dawn. And he had almost decided to do this, when the terrible golden eyes were again directed toward him, and he realized that they must be barely outside the window, or actually within the room. There was only one thing to do. Raising the stool, he beat straight at them, and though the blow was broken by the wood splintering against the window frame, he knew that it had to some extent struck home, for a scream more terrible than any sound he had ever heard filled the night with awful vibrations. It was neither human nor animal. Every tree and stone in the desolate place seemed to echo it. The house itself quivered with it. Abruptly, he felt that the conflict was over, that he was alone, yet he had none of the exhilaration of the victor. He was dizzy, nauseated, oppressed by the darkness, the lack of air, the stench in the cottage. The gash in his face had begun to throb, and putting up his hand, he discovered it was deeper than he had realized. Somewhere there must be water in the cottage. Gathering his spent strength, he began a blind hunt for it. Twice he bumped into the wall, once into a rickety table. Except for that, and a bundle that might be rags serving for a bed, the place seemed empty. At last he discovered a series of rough board shelves, but his quick hope that there might be a water jug on them was vain. The lowest was crowded with bottles, small, queerly shaped phials for the most part. Toward the back, two or three of decanter size cheated him afresh by proving to be filled with noxious, strange liquids. The second shelf held books, and his hand on their covers disturbed thick dust, or the brown, musty powder into which ancient calf bindings degenerate. The third held a few broken pieces of crockery, and what felt like pewter utensils. The fourth seemed at first empty. On a level just above his head, his exploring hand ran half its length without encountering anything. Then, quite without warning, he touched the shelf's sole occupant. It was warm, alive. He was aware of a muted thrum and rustle just above his head, and jumped back at the instant that the cottage was filled again with ghastly, inhuman laughter. His heel caught in the bundled rags. He stumbled, fell backward, lay still, aware of two things. The filthy odour which permeated the place was like a drug, stifling him, and there was something hovering just above him. He could not see it, but he knew it was there. He almost fancied he could feel a faint breath, yet it was too quick, too pulsing for breathing. With a great effort, he raised his hand to his face. Apparently nothing was above him, 
Yet, in that last instant of consciousness, he knew that it was something living, suspended in the air, not a foot away. When he opened his eyes, the sun was streaming into the hut, and, except for the dull pain of his face and hand, the whole ghastly night might have been a dream. There was nothing whatever sinister about the little room. It was precisely what he had at first thought it—a typical peasant's home. It was not even as dirty as most of them were. Then he remembered, and sniffed apprehensively, and discovered a faint, unmistakable trace of the odour that had practically anaesthetised him the night before. What could it have been? He raised himself half on his elbow, and stared about. There was no trace of food or drink, nothing that could have so filled the room with disgust. His gaze reached the hearth, rediscovered the dead peat ashes. Swung above them was a great iron pot. It must be in that. The place was apparently abandoned, and its former owner might have left food in it. In that case, the fire lit by some chance wanderer the night before might very well have liberated the fetidness. He was on the point of rousing himself and investigating, when he heard someone singing. The voice was a woman's, peculiarly sweet, and with just that undercurrent of wildness appropriate to her surroundings. He lay back again on the bundle of rags which had served him for a bed, and listened, comfortably aware that she was approaching, and that many of his problems would be solved by her presence. Undoubtedly she would get him water and food, and once he had had them, and relaxed long enough to regain some of his lost nervous energy, he could follow her directions back to town. She was near enough now for him to hear the rustle of the shrubbery, which she brushed in passing. Another minute, and her song had stopped on a peculiarly haunting minor note, and glancing up, he saw her in the doorway. He was impressed at first with her slender straightness. It hardly seemed that her feet touched the ground, and the slight wind stirring her full skirt added to the atmosphere of lightness about her. In her hand she held a branch of the hawthorn. The sun struck through its translucent blossoms, and turned her tousled red hair to a living flame, giving her delicate silhouette peculiar life. He watched her for a long minute, in sheer pleasure at the dark, lithe outline, with its relief of fragile red flowers, and then realized that she was not alone. On her shoulder perched a great black bird. He said, "'Come in, won't you?' She did not answer, and he felt that she was smiling with a sort of amused contempt. But she did as he asked, and he noticed as she moved that her walk justified his first impression of her lightness. She seemed almost to float as she crossed to him. There was only one blemish to her perfect grace. Her left arm hung limp at her side, as if a blow had paralyzed or injured it. When she was quite near him, she turned a little, and now, for the first time, he saw her face. Just why he should have felt that slight, subconscious shock, he could not have said. 
It was undoubtedly the perfect face for such a figure, the face which he should have expected. Long, with slightly pointed chin, it had all the fragile beauty he could have desired for it. The slightly peaked brows were like an etching on the white skin, and the amber eyes beneath them were the natural accompaniment for burnished red hair. There was only one thing to mar the first impression of perfect beauty. The girl had apparently been eating berries, and a tiny red stain at the corner of her full lips threw the mouth out of symmetry. As she paused beside him, the great bird on her shoulder teetered forward, and seemed to peer into his face with sinister curiosity. He saw her lips move, and though he heard nothing, the bird flapped its wings, and with a peculiarly ungraceful motion, rose from her shoulder, and sagged through the air to the shelf. He realized suddenly that this had been the thing he had touched in the dark, the thing he had sensed hovering above him, as he sank into his coma. He said sharply, Do you live here? For a second, he thought a queer light moved behind the girl's eyes, but when she answered him, her voice had all the sweetness that had filled her singing. Yes. How did you come here? I lost my way. How long have you been here? Since an hour or so after dark. He felt that she was about to say something then, but though her eyes returned to him three or four times, and her lips half parted, she did not speak. Finally, he broke the silence. I am very thirsty. Can you get me some water? Her brows drew together. Water? Yes, of course. I told you I am thirsty, and I haven't washed since sundown. Besides, my face— he moved slightly, so that his slashed cheek was suddenly out of the shadow, and toward her. And at sight of it, she started back, a combination of horror and sorrow contorting her face. A queer little sound broke from her, something between a cry and a moan. And at the same instant, the terrible laughter which had twice before frozen him filled the cottage. Good God! What is nothing? She leaned toward him, panting a little. Only my bird. He has a split palate. It is nothing to fear. Her voice faded, and in spite of her words of reassurance, he was swept by sudden, inexplicable dread. There was something too intent, almost fascinated in her gaze. Fixed on his wound, it seemed to sear it like a flame. He raised himself on his elbow, and that threw his face into shadow again, and once her gaze was broken, she drew a long, shuddering breath, and moved back, swaying, as if she had been on the point of fainting. Water! You said you wanted water! No matter! He forced himself to his feet. I'll get it. There must be a spring. But in spite of her apparent faintness— she reached the door before him. No, you will not leave. And as he started back, frowning, it would be foolish for you to go. You do not know where there is a spring. Besides, there was something almost cunning in her eyes. You are tired. You have lost much blood. 
Her voice rose weirdly, and she turned and ran from him, sending the word echoing back to him from the trees. Blood, blood. He determined to leave at once, in spite of his exhaustion, and was about to step out of doors when he saw the girl's hawthorn bow across the threshold and stooped to put it aside. It was too lovely to tread on. The next moment he regretted his softness, for the movement seemed to liberate a swarm of bees which had apparently been stealing honey from the flowers. There were so many of them that it would have been foolhardy to force a way through them, and he drew back into the shelter of the hut, furious at the delay. At any moment the girl might come back, and he found himself dreading her return. What was it about the cottage, about her, that filled him with such terror? America, with its healthy matter-of-factness, seemed of another world. Here his atavism owned him, claimed him through immemorial centuries for forgotten beliefs and fears. A week before, he would have scorned any hysterical girl for believing in the fancies which held him now. He kept telling himself that it was all ridiculous, but the slash across his cheek proved that, ridiculous or not, there was real danger here. Instinct warned him that he must get away before the owner returned and he was about to chance the bees when he remembered the pot on the hob. It would take only a second to investigate it, and he realized that there was something about it, something which he must know. He crossed to the hearth, and holding his breath, removed the heavy lid. A thin, bluish vapor rose and twisted upward. He peered into the black interior, but could see nothing. At the same instant, he heard a footstep, and replacing the cover, whirled around. The girl stood in the doorway, an earthen ewer in her hand. Apparently, she had no suspicion of his prying, and entered the place as casually as though there were no need for haste or fear or distrust, and her first words held none of the suggestion that had undertoned her last ones. "'If you'll come into the light,' I'll bathe it. Instead of gratitude, revulsion filled him. No, I'll do it. Thanks. Out there, are the bees gone? Bees? He thought he heard a faint note of mockery behind the monosyllable, but her face was guileless. There are no bees hereabouts. He was on the point of speaking, but thought better of it, and seated himself on the stone lintel. The girl leaned against the door-jamb, watching, and as the water cleansed the slash and the blood began to flow, he realized that she was quivering, and felt a sudden overwhelming nausea. He had no doubt now that she was mad, and that her insanity was liberated by blood, the sight, even the thought of it, shaking her equilibrium. He had heard many strange tales of maniacs who seemed normal until some slight mishap overthrew their delicate mental balance. "'Go inside,' he said harshly, and when she did not move, he looked up. "'Go on.' She ran her tongue over her lips. He saw that it was pointed and too red. 
It touched the corner of her mouth, the little red stain. Her eyes glittered. He trembled with horrid realization, and sprang to his feet. She fell back before him, and was suddenly only a normal, beautiful girl, laughing a little. You are nervous. What is the matter? He hesitated. Should he confront her with his discovery, make a bold front, and tell her the truth? Come in, she said, and there was only quiet invitation in her tone. But he shuddered. No, I'm going on now. Thanks. Going on? She shook her head. But you can't. The storm. He had not noticed a storm before. He could have sworn that there had been no sign of one a moment before. Yet now the sky was black, and the heavy menace of thunder shook the place. A drop splashed at his feet. You see? And there is no regular road from here. It would be foolish, even dangerous. She was still standing just over the sill, but he shook his head. I'll watch it from here. I'm not afraid of storms. Her eyes were brooding. As you wish. She turned from him, and seemed to fade into the storm darkness of the hut's interior. He could not see her, and this added to his uneasiness, though he heard her moving about. He shifted his position so that he could watch the place where she must be, but to know that she was there, and yet discover no trace of her, was worse than not to know her whereabouts. As if in answer to his thought, a quick flame rose on the hearth. He had heard no match struck, and the effect was that of created, spontaneous light. But he was grateful for it, whatever its source. By it he could see much of the room— and though he could not discover his hostess, there was a human shadow unmistakably indicating her presence. Suddenly, he knew that it was strange that he could not see the girl. Someone was stirring the pot. He could hear the sound of a spoon going round and round in it. He could see it sway and swing to the rhythm. Yet, there was no human thing beside that hearth. The brew began to bubble. He could hear it, and hear also a soft, persistent muttering. No syllable could he distinguish. Yet suddenly, clear as the lightning around him, flashed the key to that night's mystery. He had been lured by some superhuman force to this place. He was held here by the same force. What it was, no man could say— but it ruled more human beings than any other intangible thing. He was in the spell of witchcraft. The girl was a witch. The bird was no bird. It was a demon, and the laughter that had frozen him was demon laughter. God knew what was in the terrible pot, what would be in it by morning. In swift dread he flung from the doorway— and as if to mock his futility, a sword of fire descended from the sky, split a great tree, crashed it across his path. The shock threw him back against the hut, but he was unconscious of the pain of the impact. He knew only that he must escape, now, at once. Answering his resolution, 
The muttering inside became frenzied. The great red hawthorn swayed, bent to the earth. Was it only the wind that moved it, and tossed its branches into a bristling barrier? Hawthorn, he remembered now, it was the witch's tree, and sacred to the she. No Irishman would harm so much as a leaf of it. When the girl had broken a bough, he should have realized that she was not all human. Inside the cottage was a hush more dreadful than sound. He moved very slightly, stared in. The girl stood by the table. She was lighting three candles. He noticed that they were black, and the forgotten phrase, corpse candle, stirred his memory, made him shiver. Yet by their light she seemed both human and fragile. His courage returned. He strode into the place, determined to make an end of what all his training had taught him was ridiculous. She turned slowly, back to the light. She was again a silhouette. In the storm-darkened room he saw her eyes, golden ellipses. It had been she, she herself, not some creature out of hell to do her bidding, but herself. That limp arm, it was limp from the blow of the stool. Yet the thing he had grasped had been furry. It had been an animal. Out of medieval legends, out of modern horror tales, whirled the lore of the werewolf. He remembered a dozen such stories, which he had scorned. The little red stain at the corner of her mouth, the panting, avid concentration on the slash across his face. She moved slowly toward him, but he felt himself powerless to stir. Without taking her eyes from him, she reached forward, touched the kettle. It began to swing rhythmically. In the shadows overhead, the demon bird gibbered. The pot tipped. More, more. Some of its contents slopped over. A drop or two spattered on the peat. The fire flared greenly. In that ghastly light, he saw the widening pool on the floor. It seemed to reach toward him. There was something bloated, parboiled to a dull red, sliding toward him. A human hand, borne on the slow slime. He started back. Almost without volition, his fingers fled from his brow to his breast, from shoulder to shoulder. For a moment, he thought that lightning had struck the hut. It quivered, as if it had been touched by a mighty finger. The witch seemed turned to stone, absolutely immobile. Only her golden eyes proved that she was still alive. Tim turned and fled blindly, out of the hut, into the storm. How long he ran, he did not know. He looked back only once, and whether the pursuing golden eyes were real or imaginary, he could not have told. But he did not trust to their being imaginary. He was half fainting when, through the breaking storm, he finally saw the comfortable outlines of a village. As he stumbled into its street— a dozen simple folk hurried to help him. They were curious, over-solicitous, but he kept his own counsel. Finally, they began to offer him information. 
They told him that his wounds showed that he had met the fabulous great Wolf of the North. No creature had ever seen it and lived to tell of it. Hundreds of sheep had been slaughtered. Twice children had disappeared. And recently, a man. He shuddered in grim recollection. But he did not reveal what he had seen. It was true that these countrymen of his might not scoff at the story. The old world is too wise to reject matters which outstrip ordinary human ken. But Tim had spent most of his life in America, and it had set the seal of incredulity on his Irish lips. Hello, ladies and gents. Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links.